regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to be on a call with Louis Kirsch. Louis is a third-year PhD student at the Swiss AI lab, ITSIA, advised by Professor Hugen Schmidhuber. He received his BS in IT system engineering from Hasse Plattner Institute and his master of research in computational statistics and machine learning from the University of College in London. His research focus is on meta learning algorithms for reinforcement learning, specifically meta learning algorithms that are general purpose, introduced by his work on meta general. Louis has organized the BTRR workshop at ICRR 2020, was an invited speaker at the Middle Earth NEREPS 2020, and won several GPU compute awards for the Swiss National Supercomputer, PISDENT. Yeah, so Louis, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. Thanks for inviting me. By way of introduction, I want to start out on a fun note. You were a self-employed software developer during high school and undergrad studies. Would you mind quickly going over this phase of your life? Perhaps let me start slightly earlier. Um, I started programming uh, when I was about 10 and I was super fascinated about the idea of telling a computer what to do instead of having it to do myself. Ultimately, there's only so much I can do myself with the time and energy constraints that I have. And this idea of magnifying my own efforts as much as possible has been a recurring theme in my life. Um, And ultimately, that's also what led me to AI research. So besides productivity, I also wrote some games. For example, when I was 13, I worked on my small computer game with the XNA game engine. And then it, it took me an entire year to get it finished because I was learning everything on the fly. And I, I, I can remember that on, on my 14th birthday, um, I burned these little uh, CDs for all of my friends and then gave out my game. And that was a really awesome moment. So a very central theme in my life was being a self-taught programmer. And whenever I wanted to achieve something, I, I just took it into my own hands. And um, that's the kind of mindset that uh, manifested itself in the form of having the dream to create something bigger in the future. And that's what led me to, when I turned 18, start my small own company with a friend. We started with uh, just doing some freelancing and and that was really a a dream come true for me. I did several projects for my last year in high school and during my undergrad studies. It has been very valuable in many ways. Of course, um, the opportunity to write real-world software and deal with clients and finances and taxes, all these things that go into it. At some point, I realized that contracting was not quite the same as working on my own projects. And uh, I wanted to take these projects back into my own hands. And that's what also led to me uh, going into research. But the engineering mindset from that time is something that still stuck to me. Uh, In some sense, striking the right balance between making things work uh, and practice but also achieving the bigger visions. Yeah, thanks for sharing your story and how you get into software engineering at such a quite a young age. My understanding is that for college, you graduate first the class for your bachelor degrees in IT system engineering from Hasso Plattner Institute, which is a highly ranked computer science university in Germany. So how would you uh, describe your overall undergrad experience and what were some of your favorite computer science courses? Hasse Plattner Institute is really a, a great institution. It's a actually privately financed institution by Hasse Plattner, who is the co-founder of the big German software company, SAP. It's quite different from the, the regular German university, which often has 10,000 of students. Instead, it's a very small institute with just 500 people, including faculty and students. And that really meant that I got to know all my peers and some of my greatest friendships uh, formed during that time. Yeah, I I think in terms of the courses, the theoretical computer science course was actually uh, one that I liked most. I think it has to do with that I I already had quite a bit of a software engineering background when I started out. But there were, in theoretical computer science, there were so many topics that I was not familiar with yet. Then, of course, also the introductory uh, machine learning courses, which ultimately then inspired me to do more into that direction. 
And actually, a very good friend of mine there mentioned machine learning to me and, and told me that this might be a, a cool direction to do work in. I also did Andrew Ink's course on machine learning, which many people started out with. I can really recommend that course. That's ultimately what accelerated my ambitions for magnifying my own efforts with the help of software and now, now with the artificial intelligence. I see. Let's discuss some of your work during your undergrad, even deeper details. Your bachelor thesis at HPI is called Differentiable Convolutional Neural Network Architectures for Time Series Classification. I got a chance to kind of briefly go through the abstract thesis, and my understanding is that it addressed the problem of automatically designing architectures for time series classification efficiently using a regularization technique for this convenient architecture that enables joint training of network widths and architecture through back propagation. Well, first of all, like, why are you interested in this kind of research and, you know, would you mind just sharing a bit of the problem and the proposed idea of this thesis? Sure, yeah. So this bachelor thesis was actually the first AI project that I chose for myself. And uh, I think it already reflects uh, quite well the mindset that I developed about AI research. The more I learned about machine learning, the more I was bothered about the fact that the learning part of machine learning is actually in some sense limited, right? For example, in image classifier, there's still the entire architecture that we have to manually design. Uh, CNN ways would be learned from data, but the architecture has to be designed manually. This inspired me to do yeah, essentially architecture search. And uh, back then, of course, I didn't have so much uh, computational resources as I might have now. So I really had to think about how can we efficiently search through these architectures of convolutional classifiers. I came up with this idea of a differentiable variant of architecture search by essentially growing and shrinking the number of neurons and layers in these convolutional networks. And I quickly learned that this thing has been done by people before me, way before me. For example, network morphisms are a very popular approach of doing these things. Yeah, in the end, the thesis was not entirely groundbreaking, but I think there was still some interesting novelty there. I suppose that serves as a good introductory, or like a good segue from general CS knowledge people into AI research. And also during your undergrad, you also work on another publication. This one is called Transfer Learning for Speech Recognition on the Budget. And this work explores automatic speech recognition training by mode adaptation under constrained GPU memory throughput and training data. Can you just provide a brief overview of this research? Yeah, that was also doing my undergraduate studies and I had this uh, amazing professor, Sebastian Stober, and I took this deep learning class, which was essentially mostly about working through the deep learning book by Corville Goodfellow and Bengio with a flipped classroom principle, essentially, where we had to present most of the things to the class. And one big project of that class was also to implement a speech recognition system. Mm -hmm. And from that, this first paper for the uh, ACL emerged. I was saying we were uh, developing these speech recognizers, but the resources we had back then were not that uh, extraordinary, which motivated us to work on speaker recognition with a constrained GPU memory budget and throughput and limited training data. Yeah, this particular paper investigated how one can train a speech recognizer on a larger English corpus and then just apply transfer learning to it. Essentially, that means taking these weights as initialization and then continue training on a smaller German corpus, right? So if you want a German speech recognizer and you don't want to train from scratch, maybe you don't have enough resources, you don't have enough data, can you use transfer learning for that? And yeah, ultimately that led to uh, fairly large savings in GPU compute and memory and the required training data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, perhaps unexpectedly, this paper also has uh, quite a few citations uh, in the meanwhile. I see. I guess I just wanted to quick segue to this. These are some of your earliest exposure to academic research. What are some of the challenges that you have to, maybe not challenges, but like what are some adaptation? Like how do you adapt to studying computer science, doing programming on your own to like, you know, working more into research level kind of work? Yeah, I think so. One of the main barriers I had in the beginning was just that my background was mostly software engineering and I was lacking a bit of theoretical background in mathematics in general, I would say. And also I had no idea how to approach a research problem. That really meant that I had to put a lot of effort into learning as much as possible about it. I suppose I attacked this similar to how I um, learned how to program. I just tried to do many online courses, read up online using the Andrew Ings course I started out and then using the deep learning book. And then I tried to dig deeper, search through Reddit and read some first papers. So I think in the end, yeah, it was mostly um, putting in a lot of time to get up to speed in a field where I was not familiar with at all. I see. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. After graduating from HPI in 2017, you completed a one-year master of research degree in computational statistics and machine learning 
from the University College in London. And this degree actually in cooperation with uh, DeepMind and the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit. You were advised by uh, Professor David Barber in UCL. Well, how was your first of all transition from going from your undergrad to your master, like, you know, maybe going from Germany to the UK, and then how was your overall academic experience at UCL? I think actually going to UCL was probably one of the best decisions I've made because it really threw me into this machine learning environment. Like my undergrad was mostly focused on computer science, mostly software engineering, actually. And with UCL, there was this big cut to like, now I'm in machine learning, now I'm doing only machine learning problems. And I'm actually uh, also part of a, of a research group uh, with David Barber. So yeah, overall, this year at UCL was really incredible. And I, I would say I've never learned that much in a, in a year as I did back at, at UCL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it sort of transitioned me from a software engineer to being a machine learning researcher. In terms of the courses at UCL, I think the best one was the probabilistic and unsupervised learning course at the Gatsby unit, mm-hmm. uh, which was yeah insanely densely packed, quite a challenge, but really allowed me to learn a lot from the professors, from my peers, and really uh, get up to speed quickly. I would say this course is also what mostly prepared me then for my first actual publication at NIRPS. Uh, also, huge thanks to, to David Barber for being part of that research group. Uh, overall, it was a fantastic year. You mentioned that you know, this transition allows you to really dig, dig into the research in a more higher level. And uh, you have a lot of interesting publication and report during this one year master. So for the next part of our chat, I want to dig deeper into some of this work. You work on this paper called Model Networks, Learning to Decompose Neurocomputation, that is later published at the NeurIPS company in 2018. This paper proposed a training algorithms that flexibly choose neural modules based on the process data. So what was the idea behind Model Networks and what were some of the learnings from your experiments? If you look at the history of deep learning, um, it's not necessarily the fancy new learning algorithms that ultimately improved our model's performance. Instead, uh, a driving factor is really scale. Scale in, in terms of the data set size and the number of parameters in your model. A very recent example of that is, of course, uh, GPT-3 by OpenAI that uh, most people have heard of. If you think about the human brain, it's, uh, it has an estimated number of like 150 trillion synapses. As a very rough approximation, this corresponds to at least 150 trillion floating point parameters. And if you compare that to our largest machine learning models, we have a few billion parameters, maybe in the meanwhile, a few hundreds of billion but there's still a few orders of magnitude in between. And the main issue is that for every input that we feed into our models, we have to evaluate all the parameters, which means our compute budget has to scale at least linearly with our model size. That of course also means we have to put, yeah, need more hardware and it's more energy costly. Yeah, if you compare this to the human brain, it has just around 20 watts. So there's a huge difference in between here. And one big reason might be that not all the neurons in the brain fire all the time, and the energy cost is proportional to the number of firing neurons. And that was the inspiration for this modular networks paper, where we used a somewhat similar technique. So basically what we had, we had this pool of small neural networks, we call them modules. And then we would both train these modules, change their parameters, as well as train how we have to compose those to a larger neural network. That means that only some of these modules have to be executed at a time, not all of them. Compared to our related work, the module selection had to be deterministic. So it was really important to us that we don't have to potentially evaluate multiple modules at a time as it was often done previously with mixture of experts, but really we wanted to only have to evaluate one module, then go to the next stage, evaluate another module, then go to the next stage, evaluate another module instead of having at each stage or each layer to evaluate many of them. And another interesting thing that we analyzed was this thing of module collapse, where many of the previous papers had this issue that essentially when you start training, you always use the same modules in the beginning, and then those modules get better and better over time. So when you decide which module to pick next, you pick the ones that is already better, and some of these modules will never be trained. Mm-hmm. And that's something we worked around in, in our approach. I see. It seems like the motivation for this idea of modular coming from neuroscience, right? correct? It's a very rough approximation. I mean, we know that some brain regions are active at some times and sometimes are not active. So that's where the inspiration comes from. But I'm not a good enough neuroscientist to really draw very tight connections there. I see. So besides this publication, during your time working at UCL, you also work with a variety of other interesting technical report. And there's a report that basically a follow-up from what we just discussed. It's called Scaling Neural Networks Through Spacity. Essentially, it discussed near-term and long-term solution to handle sparsity between neural layers. 
Which my ability is going with some of these solutions as proposed in that report. This was really a follow-up to the modular networks report. Yeah, the idea was is that perhaps uh, composing these modules is not the right way of doing it. That we have to split our network into all these modules, and maybe this is too granular in some sense, right? If if you have only some modules you can execute at a time, then the the whole structure is perhaps too granular, and maybe it would be better if we would just turn on and off certain neurons in our network or turn off certain weights in our network. So I thought a little bit deep about this topic and and mapped out what we can do in this direction without having to resort to modules directly. Yeah, the main insight is that perhaps we could use some sort of sparsity, either sparsity in the weights of a neural network or sparsity in the activations of a network. So the sparsity in the activations would be essentially conditioned on the input, similar to how the modular networks were conditioned of the input, whereas the weights would be unconditional of the input. And the basic idea is that whenever a weight or an activation is zero, we would just skip the associated computation. And in the case of the inactivation, we could just skip the entire row of the weight matrix. Machine learning models already have a lot of sparsity, or we can use regularizers to increase the sparsity. So there's a lot of room for that. Um, but there's an unfortunate problem here, uh, which mm-hmm. is also why I talked about long-term problems in that report. The problem is that our GPUs are absolutely awful at skipping those zero operations. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in the case when these zero operations are scattered all around the weight matrix uh, without any grouping. So ultimately, the long-term goal, if we want to leverage such sparsity in weights and activations, we would need better hardware that can actually leverage this kind of sparsity. The near-term solutions in, in comparison would be to do something like the modular networks, as I suggested, where you have bigger modules that have more neurons at a time that you switch on and off, or something also called block sparsity, where you just group multiple weights in a weight matrix together and turn those on or off. Interesting, yeah. Do you see any potential hardware maybe right now in the near future that can serve as that long-term solution that you provided in this report? Mm. So there's there's two sides to the story. One thing is I talked with NVIDIA actually at NeurIPS. I talked with GraphCore and a bunch of other companies about what they think about this and whether there are potential ways forward in this regard, designing new hardware. Their answer so far always has been, well, this is maybe not a big enough of a problem yet in the mm-hmm. sense that, well, we're doing fine right now with the basic matrix matrix multiplication and building specialized hardware for such sparsity would be very costly, even though they do also see the potential benefits and that at some point we might actually need something like that. And the other answer is that I also thought about, well, given our current hardware, how we could write custom CUDA kernels that could leverage sparsity in other ways but I must say it has been fairly unsuccessful so far. So it's certainly still an open research question. Very, very interesting insight. Another report during the time at UCL is called Characteristic Machining Research with Impact. So this one is less technical, but more like a discussion and exploratory analysis. Particularly, you explore the questions such as how to measure research impact. And you may be like, what are some of the questions that the machining community should focus on to maximize impact? Can you share some of the interesting findings from this work? So this is actually a report that I wrote for a course at UCL. Mm-hmm. And um, I think ultimately any researcher that is interested in making an impact should try to learn as much as possible about why other people are successful, what, what even constitutes an impact. Uh, of course, just answering this question, what, what constitutes an impact is quite difficult. And in academia, we like to use citations because those are the one of the few things that we can actually directly measure and compare. It's already questionable whether that's the right way to go. But in this report, I did essentially analyze what kinds of papers are highly cited and when do they get cited? Maybe I can share some of these insights. Mm -hmm. So one insight was that majority of the citations of a publication that later becomes really successful is actually not right after their publication, but can be decades behind. So it can take a very long time until something gets cited. So even if a publication is not popular straight away, it doesn't necessarily mean it will stay that way. And another insight was that many papers that are highly cited have large-scale applications. So not just are they proposing a new idea that perhaps is useful in the future, but you also need large-scale experiments in that publication to demonstrate to others that your idea is good. And in at least the publications that are highly cited often have such large-scale experiments. Or the other way of doing it is to just write a a literature review that those also get highly cited. Yeah, then also if if you look at very highly cited researchers, then another interesting insight is that if you look at all their papers, 
most of these papers are actually not that highly cited. It's actually very few publications that really make it. So there's a lot of trial and error involved there as well, even if you are a very skillful researcher. Mm-hmm. These are some interesting insights. Well, let's say for young researchers right now, aspire to maximize the impact in the long-term future. What is like maybe the number one priority that you would recommend just based on some of these analysis that you did? Obviously, there's a lot of things that they can do, but like, which one is like the highest priority, do you think? I'm not sure this report really answers that question directly, but mm-hmm. I think in the, the top priority in the beginning should be to just accumulate knowledge and skill, like really become very good at implementing models, doing experimentation with those models, be really good at quickly reading research papers, just spend a lot of time doing those things. That, that should be the biggest priority in the beginning. I see. Yeah, so get the fundamentals right. Yeah. So your final report of this year, this one is called Contemporary Challenges in Artificial Intelligence. So this report included a couple of interesting areas such as lifelong learning, scalability, generalization, self-referential algorithms, and benchmark. So yeah, can you just provide a brief overview of these challenges? So during my time at UCL, I tried to figure out what are the most important challenges for artificial intelligence. And I tried to condense it to a few. They, they might not be complete, but it seemed to me that those are the, one of the most important ones. So the first one is lifelong learning essentially just the ability to accumulate knowledge without forgetting previous relevant information. A lot of our systems still can't really do that very well. I think that's a a very big research topic for the future. The Mm -hmm. second one is the scalability that ties into the modular networks, right? How can we drastically increase the number of parameters in our models while not having to spend more and more compute to do so? Mm-hmm. And the third one is generalization as a defining capability of intelligence is, is to find the pattern in previous experiences and apply them to future experiences. But crucially, we need to be able to uh, not just memorize these previous experiences, but also generalize into the future. The last two are, are the dearest to me. Uh, the fourth one is about meta-learning and self-improvement. So a, a truly general artificial intelligence needs to be able to also improve its own learning algorithm. The last one is training environments. Of course, even if you have a really good learning algorithm, you need some environments. That might be the real world. Uh, Then you have to think about how to set up the robotics. That might be some uh, virtual environment. Then you have to build these virtual environments or think about how to generate them. Yeah, as I already mentioned, the last two are are what really, uh, I think, are the the most crucial of the five on the list, which is meta-learning and training environments. And and we'll talk about that. Some of these two are challenges later on, because that's what you focus on at the moment. Before that, I suppose like around the same time, you basically could have started writing on your blog. Your first two blog posts is like this two-part series on intelligent theories, which give an insight into a top-down theoretic approach to universal AI, and then also introduce the concept of active inference. But first of all, like what motivated you to start a blog? And then second of all, can you unpack some of the central ideas covered in these two articles? I think writing a blog is really cool to better understand your own thought process and to figure out where perhaps you haven't thought through an idea yet or where you don't understand certain concepts yet. So that, that's why I started writing a blog. In particular, this blog post was about getting out of the cluttered mess of all the problems that are out there and all the approaches that are out there, all the new publications that are being published all the time, and just zooming out a little bit and thinking about like what would be perhaps even the theoretically optimal way of solving this AI problem. And that's what led me to universal AI, which is essentially an attempt to, first of all, define intelligence, and then also derive a theoretically optimal or Pareto optimal to precise uh, agent. And we'll talk about this in a second. Marcus Hutter and Shane Legg essentially developed this uh, universal AI approach. And they define intelligence as measuring the agent's ability to achieve goals in a wide range of environments. That sounds quite intuitive already. Okay, you have many goals and you have many environments and the agents have to achieve them. But they actually also formalize them with the help of uh, something called the Kolmogorov complexity. And the cool thing is they derived an agent called IXE, which is able to be Pareto optimal in mm-hmm according to this definition, which means that if you compare IXE to any other possible reinforcement learning agent, then if that other reinforcement learning agent is better in some of these environments, then it has to be, so it's better than than IXE in some of these environments, then it has to be worse in some other environments where IXE is better. 
So you can find an agent which is strictly better in uh, any set of environments or in all, in all sets of environments, sorry. And that sounds really awesome for artificial intelligence if you can show this theoretically. But of course, unfortunately, IX is not computable, which means we would have to resort back to approximations. People have tried that, but it's also very difficult. So at this point, it's more a nice uh, theoretical way of thinking what would an optimal agency look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were also mentioning the second blog post, right? Uh, um, right. I was writing it on, on, on active inference and active right. inference is a completely different angle, which is more from the neuroscience background. It tries to explain many phenomena in the brain. It tries to explain the behavior of cells and organs and animals and humans and entire species and tries to find one principle that applies to all of these levels of abstraction in some mm -hmm. sense. This uh, crucial element in that framework, which is called the uh, variational free energy, they essentially define a probabilistic model which includes all these challenges like exploration, perception, and action, and just expresses this as a probabilistic model and then describes this variational free energy, which has to be minimized in order to solve all of these problems. And that framework was quite appealing to me because it, it kind of unified all these problems into one simple framework. Though I have to say, I'm not an expert on this. I'm, there's still some things that, which are a little bit unclear to me, I would say. And actually, if the listener is interested into diving deeper in this topic, there is a very nice recent paper by a friend of mine, Danny Jahafner, which investigated active inference and related topics in a recent preprint. Do you think that idea of rational free energy, you said you defy all this concept, is that something that you're interested in pursuing for your research in the long term, or are you think that's... To me right now, it seems like potentially a dead end in the sense that there's still many open questions. Even if you put all of this into one framework, you still have to figure out what does this probabilistic model look like? What are the approximations you're making? And you have to make all of these design decisions again, what this agent has to look like. With meta-learning, there's this possibility that perhaps you can just optimize all of these design decisions by just giving it some tasks and some environments and then figuring out what is the best way of structuring an agent which can solve the problems we care about. But of course, I, I can't rule out that perhaps many interesting things will still come out of this direction. Since October 2018, you have been a PhD student at the Swiss AI lab. It's here in Lugano, Switzerland. And in particular, you've been working on meta-reinforcement learning agents with Hugen Schmidhuber. Why did you decide to pursue a PhD in ITSIA, first of all? And uh, basically, how would you describe your research environment there? At that point, actually, when I was looking for doing a PhD, I was already very interested in this whole idea of uh, meta-learning, figuring out like what is the best way to pursue AGI. And that's why Jürgen Schmidhuber was a very interesting candidate to work with, because his research interests are also very aligned with that. And he actually also started the field of meta-learning in, in 1987. I really enjoy working there. And in general, it's incredible how many of the ideas of Jürgen find practical applications today and or, or are just reinvented later. Yeah, I'm quite confident that there are also many more ideas that he touched upon previously that will still have a, a very promising future. Mm -hmm. In terms of the research environment, we have a lot of freedom in the group. So we are able to like pursue the projects we think are best and we think are really promising. That's something I, I really appreciate and I think worked quite well for me so far. Yeah, the lab is located in, in, in Switzerland, in, in Lugano, in the very southern part of Switzerland. It's also great for hiking. I like to hike in the nearby mountains and uh, just go for walks at the lake and uh, mm. reflect on life. Yeah. It's a very nice environment. I see. A lot of people know who in as a pioneer and as a researcher of the field. How is he as an advisor, as a mentor, from someone who has personal experience working with him? Yeah, he likes to think about the very big picture problems, right? He likes to zoom out and look at all of this research that has been going on and figure out like what are the core principles that are really necessary in order to make AGI uh, happen. That's also what most of the discussions with him are about, right? You sit, uh, eat together uh, during lunch and you discuss like what projects you're working on and how this ties into all of these other ideas that he had in the past and how perhaps things could be a little bit more general and perhaps some of these inductive biases that we still need could be dropped. That's what I value a lot about discussing research uh, with Jürgen. As we already mentioned, like draw long-term research show is to create reinforcement learning agent that can learn their own learning algorithms, making them truly general in the AGI sense. A while back, you create this very extensive map of reinforcement learning 
Basically, it allies the goal, the methods, and the challenges associated with this learning domain. Just out of curiosity, what was your process of creating this map? Maybe to first let the listeners know some thoughts about meta learning, because I think that helps to describe this kind of mind map that I created. So it's very obvious that when we do research on learning algorithms, there's a lot of trial and error involved, and we as a research community have to. Keep inventing new reinforcement learning algorithms in order to solve all the problems that we haven't solved yet. Uh, some people also call this the graduate student descent, right? As an analogy to grade descent, we need a lot of human capital to improve our learning algorithms. And uh, yeah, with meta learning, the the burden of designing a good learning algorithm is no longer necessarily on the human researcher, but now shifted to be learned from data automatically. And To deepen my understanding about what sort of problems a meta-learning algorithm would have to be able to solve, uh, I created this big mind map essentially about all the challenges that I currently could think of in reinforcement learning, and really tried to categorize and see like what are people working on and what would we have to either solve ourselves as human researchers or be able to solve automatically using meta-learning. My thought was it's also quite valuable for many people, in particular who are just entering the field, to get an overview of what is being done. That's why I also posted online. I guess you're going back a little bit. You look at meta learning from a reinforcement learning perspective. Do you see any other progress of meta learning for just for supervised and unsupervised learning? I think the benefit of meta learning is even bigger in reinforcement learning because there we have so many unsolved problems. <laughs> like reinforcement learning often doesn't really work yet in practice. But also in supervised learning, I think there is a lot of potential. Perhaps in the unsupervised learning area, where we don't quite know how do we extract all the necessary information from the data in order to then perform really well when we do have some training uh, labels and then yeah make better predictions or whatever your task is. In that sense, there has been also some work on meta learning unsupervised uh, objectives. I think there's a lot of room as well. Also, in the context of continued learning, right? If we think mm-hmm. about How can we learn on some data? We we'll learn one task, then learn the next task, and the next one, but still be able to solve all the previous tasks. That's something backpropagation, which we basically use in all of our supervised learning settings, doesn't really do well yet. And I'm hoping that meta learning can make good progress in that direction. I see. Fun question is like within the scope of reinforcement learning itself, what do you think is the most exciting application of reinforcement learning in the real world? Apart from meta learning, something that is like have the highest like adoption curve. So, I think there could be a lot of applications in uh, with robotics in in industries, automizing certain production processes. But that's not something I am really familiar with, so I can't really speak a lot about that. I personally, I would really love to have some agent that I could just ask any question or ask to do any task for me. Like we use it as a sort of oracle, <laughs> but of course, that's a very far-fetched future. We're not quite there yet. In terms of near-term applications, I think it might mostly be in, in terms of robotics and industry. And I think personal assistant is something that a lot of people are dreaming about, and because I think a lot that combines a lot of the progress in other field like NLP as well. Right? Around this same time, you also wrote a blog post reflecting on your experience at Neurips 2018. You provide some interesting insights on the AI roadmap regarding some of the topics of scalability, continuous learning, machine learning, and benchmark, which is essentially some of the challenges that we discussed a little bit earlier in our conversation from majority part at UCL. Can you just unpack some of the key insights provided in that blog post? It's pretty much an update and refinement of the challenges in AI that I previously wrote as a technical report. In that new blog post, I focused mostly on the meta learning and, and learning environments components as a path to AGI. I talked already a bit about like the importance of meta learning before, but perhaps let me highlight the second one: the learning environments uh, again. So even if we have the perfect meta learner, we will still need environments to train it on, and we need to give it some tasks that it should uh, perform. So ultimately, building these environments and, and tasks from hand will be, yeah, infeasible. So we need some principle of generating new problems apart from the manually designed tasks that we uh, want the AI to achieve. Essentially, these two pillars of environments um, that we have to generate, and the meta learner that tries to get better on these environments and tries to find meta learning algorithms to learn in general, is something that later also turned out to be quite related to Jürgen's power play framework. But then, also a few months later, Jeff Kuhn published his ideas on these AI-generating algorithms, 
And he also describes a, a similar angle to this as a path to AGI via meta-learning, where he had identified these three components with meta-learning, environment generation, and architecture search as a path to AGI. And I think there are some similarities here in the sense that I also identified environment generation and meta-learning architecture search. I perhaps have subsumed into meta-learning. But in general, I think Jeff did an amazing job in writing things down in his big AI generating algorithms report much better than I was able to. That's definitely worth checking out. I see. I guess in that post, you also brought up some examples of some of the environments that serve as a good benchmark for researchers to conduct IR Asian. And I think you brought up a couple of things from like the StarCraft environment to Unity to the obstacle towers. Mom, for people who are just interested in exploring some of these open source environment, do you have any recommendation on the type of, you know, a publicly available benchmark environment around that they can check it out? I think it's still a largely unsolved problem, what kind of environments we should train on. But I think a very cool framework for exploring these ideas of what sort of environments we should build or generate, which is essentially just ML agents. So it's a small framework based on a game engine called Unity 3D which allows to essentially prototype new environments or think about how can we generate environments in this game engine. So both if you're interested in like thinking about the problem of generating new problems or building new problems, as well as if you're interested in terms of uh, what problems should I run my reinforcement learning agents on, that's a very good direction to look into. I see. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I actually interviewed the ML engineer lead of that project before on the podcast. I definitely learned a lot from that process and how to create that environment. Yeah. Yeah. Let's discuss, you know, a couple of your recent research paper related to this topic of building meta region. One of your first peer review publications, which is student, is called Improving Generalization in Meta Reinforcement Learning Using Learn Objectives. So it's presented at Virtual SCR 2020. This research includes a novel algorithm called MetaGen IR, which is inspired by a biological evolution. How did MetaGen IR address some of the limitations of existing state of that meta IR algorithms? At that point, when I started out this project, I was a little bothered about where the field of meta-learning is at the moment. I always wanted meta-learning to be the, the change that reduces the burden on the human researcher to invent new learning algorithms. Instead, it seemed to me a little bit that meta-learning approaches that were currently out there didn't really solve the same problem as a human researcher would do. What do I mean by that? Let's say we invent a, a new reinforcement learning algorithm, like a policy gradient then we want to be able to apply this new learning algorithm to all kinds of RL problems, like entirely different games from the Atari suite or entirely different robotic tasks. If you come up with a new learning algorithm and you want it to be accepted at a conference, then it has to be applicable to many environments. It can't just work on some of them. And if you compare this to meta-learning, we had uh, huge progress recently, but the problem was that it was often really good at quickly adapting to extremely similar tasks or environments, but not so much over a wide range of different environments as a human engineered algorithm would be capable of. That's essentially what motivated MetaGeneral. It was about the idea of meta-learning general purpose learning algorithms. My paper was essentially a first step into that direction. Mm -hmm. By the way, MetaGeneral stands for meta-learning general reinforcement learners. Right. The idea was is that to meta-learn a single learning algorithm that is applicable across a wide range of different L agents and environments, we need to have a big population of agents that act in different environments. You essentially start with a random learning algorithm, and then you have this population of agents that all use this learning algorithm to learn at the moment. But then at the same time, we use the experiences that we collect from these agents to improve that learning algorithm. And uh, in that particular case, this learning algorithm we represent it using a, a small neural network, which is essentially just an objective function. So what does that mean? It, it takes as an input things like the actions of the RL agent, in particular states, and the reward it got for these actions. And then it just produces a scalar loss, similar to how our usual objective functions are defined. And then we are able to differentiate this produced scalar loss with respect to the agent parameters. And in that way, we can update our agents using this objective function. And then meta-learning essentially corresponds to calculating this second-order gradient on the objective function, where we differentiate through the uh, objective function and through the agent in order to update the parameters of the objective function. Right. In practice, we were able to show that this meta-learned objective uh, can be trained on some environments, like, say, uh, the lunar lander environment and some environments on the Mujoku benchmark. And then... Later on, we can just apply this objective function on an entirely different environment and it can still 
perform learning there. So it, it can really generalize to significantly different environments. And uh, for me, this, this was a, a big breakthrough. I was really happy about that result. At the end of that publication, in the future work session, you mentioned that you, know, you want to keep improving some of these learning capabilities of that objective functions by better leveraging knowledge from prior experience. What are some ideas that you're thinking about at the moment? Yeah, so it actually turns out that there was some new work by DeepMind after I published this, which already looked into some more expressive alternatives. There was this paper called Dis- Discovering Reinforcement Learning Algorithms, which is somewhat similar to MetaGeneral. But what they were able to do is they also, in addition, MetaLearned something like a, a value function, but they didn't exactly say it should look like a conventional value function, but it can also model other things about the future. In that manner, they made the objective function a little bit more expressive and showed that this can actually uh, give you big um, performance gains. So mm-hmm. what they did is they meta-learned just over some toy environments that were really simple, like grid worlds and stuff like that, and then applied the same algorithm to Atari games and uh, showed that this can generalize. I see. I guess another question I'm curious about is the compute aspect of this research. I think my basic understanding is IR is generally very sample inefficient from that angle, like how much training time and compute costs that you take to you know, conduct some of these experiments. Yeah. I mean, there's two angles to this. Uh, there's the sample efficiency and there's just the amount of GPU compute that you need. In terms of sample efficiency, in this particular meta-general approach, we actually use some off-policy way of doing meta-learning by using Q functions. In that way, sample efficiency was actually quite good. So we only needed, I think, 20 million interactions in order to meta-learn this objective function, which is actually fairly good for a meta-learning approach. Mm. In terms of GPU compute, we also did things a little bit different compared to other meta-learning approaches. So in general, I very much agree with you that meta-learning is super expensive. But in our case, actually, we made it a little bit cheaper with a trick where we didn't train an agent from scratch every time to see how good the current objective function is. But mm-hmm. instead, we only train it for a few steps. And in order to have the objective function applicable across many different situations this agent might be in, we have this big population of agents. So you have many different parameters of agents, which are many different situations and many different environments. And then based on that, you have this meta-learning signal for your objective function. And in terms of raw numbers, like how expensive was this? Uh, essentially, we could do this on something like four to maybe 10 uh, GPUs in order to learn a subjective function. So it's actually doable, even if you don't have massive clusters of GPUs. I see. Interesting. We, we talked, maybe this is a good part to bring this up, but like during the introduction, you mentioned that there were a couple of GPU computer hours from the industry, essentially. The GPU computer hours I got are actually not from industry. So this is a a federal project. The CSCS is a national supercomputer here in Switzerland, Mm. and it's purely for academia. So essentially, there's an application process where you have to um, write a proposal and lay out why you need all this compute. You need to show that you have some sort of prototype algorithm that is able to run efficiently on that supercomputer. And then, yeah, you submit your proposal and about... Half a year later, people come back to you and tell you whether you can have this compute and do your research with it. So it's actually a bit of a process, and I'm quite happy that I was able to get the compute for my research in that regard. Fascinating. Recently, you invited a speaker at the Virtual NeurIPS 2020 conference. During that talk, you brought up one of your most recent publications. This one is called Meta Learning Back Propagation and Improving It. So this research introduced the variable shared meta learning framework that unifies existing meta learning approach and demonstrate that simple weight sharing and sparsity in the network are sufficient to express powerful learning algorithms. Would you mind just elaborating on this proper framework in more details? So variable shared meta learning is I would say the next step after meta general. With meta general we were able to learn somewhat general purpose learning algorithms, but we still needed many of these inductive biases like backpropagation and objective functions that we hard-coded into our system. And that means we could make suboptimal choices there, right? Perhaps representing the learning algorithm in that way is not the best way of doing it. And with variable shared meta-learning, or I also call it VSML for short, I try to discard many of these manually designed biases and really try to figure out what is a very simple approach of doing this. The main intuition is that Learning algorithms like backpropagation are really simple principles that are applied all across linear networks. So you have very few bits that describe the learning algorithm. 
but lots of bits that are the result of what is being learned. Mm -hmm. So usually a learning algorithm extracts information from the environment and updates the weights of a neural network with it. So the weights are what is being learned and you have many of these weights where you can store information. Whereas the learning algorithm, say in the supervised context backpropagation is really simple to describe. Now, if you think of one of the simplest meta-learners out there, it's essentially just a recurrent neural network that mm -hmm. receives feedback like rewards from the environment. So what does that mean? Uh, essentially, the recurrent neural network in the reinforcement learning context would output some action, then would receive some reward about how good that action was. And based on that feedback, it can decide what action should I take next. So in some sense, it can encode a learning algorithm in the weights of this RNM. It can store information about what it should do next and what could be a better strategy in the future in its activations. So the activations are sort of a memory. That very simple principle was described by Sepp Hochreiter in 2001. And here's the big but. It directly violates what I said previously. The learning algorithm is encoded in the weights. That means we have quadratically many weights compared to our activations where we store information. That means we have a largely overparameterized learning algorithm. We have way too many variables where we store our learning algorithm in these weights and a very small memory. For general purpose learning algorithms, we would want to have the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. And my simple solution for that was to introduce weight sharing to the weight matrix of an RNN, such that we have just a few weights which are just replicated many times across this weight matrix. There are multiple interpretations of this approach. You can think of the neurons in your brain and um, variable-shaped meta-learning is essentially a meta-learning, the learning algorithm of these neurons. Or you can see VSML as meta-learning, how to update the weights in your network. And I think that's the beauty of VSML, essentially that it ties all these previous approaches together. Some of these approaches are called fast weights and hyper-networks and learning rules. Mm -hmm. And essentially just this weight-sharing approach is a very simple principle which can encompass all these other approaches. And the cool experiments we did in this paper was twofold. One of them was to show that a recurrent neural network using this valuable shared approach could implement backpropagation. We did something called learning algorithm cloning there. So we just trained this recurrent neural network to yeah, essentially implement backpropagation. So that when we run this recurrent neural network forward, it, and it gets data every timestamp, and the label, what it should predict, then it becomes better and better at predicting those things by something like backpropagation. The other experiment that we did is to just meta-learn from scratch. So we didn't even put this bias in there that we want this RNN to learn something by using backpropagation. But instead, we essentially just said, okay, here's all the data and all the labels, uh, figure out how to better predict these labels just by running the recurring neural network forward. And that way we were able to actually have a solution. So we had a recurring network, you could just apply it to a data set, like the MS data set or the fashion MS data set, and it could learn to predict better the respective images that we fed into it, even though it has never seen this data set before. So we have meta-learned a general purpose learning algorithm in some sense in that recurrent neural network. I see. Interesting. And the idea I think you mentioned here is that you can generalize to different data set without explicit gradient calculation. Yes, precisely. So we don't need to construct this graph of the backpropagation path anymore, and we don't have to decide that we want to use backpropagation, but instead all the learning is encoded in the weights of this recurrent neural network now. Right. Interesting. So I suppose the motivation for this work is you look at basically the history of you know previous work and what are some of the pros and cons, and you sort of combine some of this idea together to create variable shared meta learning. I'm just curious from a timeline, how long did it take you from the initial conception research to like actually finalize the, um, the implementation of this work? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I actually thought about this concept of sharing weights or sharing variables for a long time. And I suppose I looked a lot at the history, yes, like what are the approaches for meta learning that people have tried so far, but I didn't just want to combine things, but I wanted to distill it to very simple principle. I wanted to figure out like, what do all of these things have in common? What simple concepts can we use? That process already started way back, probably one and a half, one year back, where I just started writing down all of these ideas, started to like figure out what, what are these simple principles. And that was also largely in parallel to Meta General, right? And then actually starting to 
implement those things and getting them into a nice theoretical framework, like writing everything down and making it very nice. That's something that's, that happened in, I'd say, the last five months or so. What is the most challenging part throughout this whole process of coming up with this novel idea? So I'm not sure what challenging, but at least time consuming wise, it's really running all the experiments, trying to figure out what is not working right now, why things are not working as you expected it to work. And yeah, essentially debugging the issues that you encounter in your approach. I think that that is really what takes most of the time that it doesn't just apply to this project. I think that's something that is true in general for deep learning research that a lot of time is in this empirical evaluation and building these experiments, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work. Mm. Ultimately, I'm hoping that can be reduced using meta learning in the future, but we are not quite there yet. These sort of things are entirely automated. I see. Yeah. So basically the practice of engineering inform your creativity for the scientific Engineering is still a big part of it, yeah. <laughs> kind of continuing that thread, you give that talk at the NERIPS 2020 machine learning workshop, introducing this research variable machine learning. And then at the end of that talk, you um, also propose the idea to bootstrap AI. I think my, my basic understanding is that this entails how the task, the general machine learner, and the unsupervised objective should interact. Can you explain this idea to the audience? Yes. So I previously mentioned that there are two crucial challenges in AI, right? Uh, one is meta-learning and the other one is task or environment generation. But uh, even if you have this perfect meta-learner, you won't be able to solve the hardest problems you might care about. So you know, think of a robot. You want it to clean your apartment. If it has never figured out how to walk and how to hold your vacuum cleaner, uh, it will not figure that out just by you rewarding it for having cleaned the room or not having cleaned the room. So in some sense, you first have to uh, have some environments or tasks to train your robot on to have it build up knowledge about how to interact with the world, how to achieve certain goals. And researchers have thought about this a lot already, how to generate these problems like artificial curiosity is one possible solution or empowerment, the minimal criterion co-evolution and many others. But the problem is that we have to think about all these possibilities again. We are back to requiring a lot of human engineering again. And from my point of view, we would want to avoid that. We want to, would want to minimize the human engineering that is required. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem because let's say we want to meta-learn how to generate new environments or tasks, then we need some training signal for this meta-learner, right? So in order to meta-learn, we need problems. In order to figure out how to generate problems, we need a good meta-learner. And the bootstrapping AI conjecture is essentially suggesting that we initialize our system with something human engineered, like a human engineered um, problem generator. And then later on, replace it with something else when we figured out how to solve problems in general. Is that going to be what you want to work on for the next couple of years, Rob, usually? Yes, sir. I think it, it's a fairly big vision and I'm, I'm certainly not the only one going to be working in that direction. There's tons of work by many researchers who are interested in this problem. I think it's a, it's a very crucial problem and uh, I will also be working on this problem, but it will require perhaps more time than that is left in my PhD. <laughs> I see. What are you most excited about meta learning research community in the next couple of years or so? What are some of the trends you're most excited about? The big push towards meta learning general purpose learning algorithms. And that's really, I think it's getting up to speed now. There has been some new work by DeepMind that I already mentioned by Al. There has been AutoML0 about meta-learning computational graphs, which describe learning algorithms. There has been some very new work, which I haven't even read yet, but on, on evolved new learning algorithms that also can generalize. So I think there, there's a lot of stuff coming out now, and I'm really excited about where this is going and what sort of algorithms it can, learning algorithms it can come up with, which we as human researchers haven't come up with yet. And then more on overarching question, right? So reflecting on your research career thus far, what could be your advice for individuals who want to make a dance in AI research? Yeah, great question. So I think you should start with identifying your goal. If you don't know what exactly you're interested in and what you want to achieve, then just start out with exploring and re-implementing other people's work to figure out what interests you. And maybe write some blog posts. As I already mentioned, this is a great tool to really develop deep understanding and develop your own ideas. Why am I saying that you have to figure out your goal first? It's ultimately because it will be a lot of work, just uh, 
building these skills will require lots of your time. When something gets hard, right, if you get rejected or if things don't work for months and months, it's good if you have a, a goal in front of you and you know why you're doing these things. Mm -hmm. Then also keep learning. There are many people who are much better than myself doing research. So I'm also constantly trying to figure out what I can do better, uh, what other people are doing differently and maybe having better success with and uh, get really good at designing and running experiments. That's something I mentioned already. Deep learning research is a lot about really being good at running experiments, evaluating experiments, designing experiments. Uh, that's something where you spend most of your time. And then lastly, networking and advertisement. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's the harsh tr truth that a lot of research is also about networking and advertisement. You have to learn about uh, how to sell yourself, get to know the important people in your field, try to demonstrate to them that you're capable and perhaps even try to collaborate with them if possible. Yeah, thanks for sharing those very concrete, um, valuable insights. So finally, I want to end on a more personal note. So before the charge mentioned that you are really obsessed with optimizing our productivity, which is a crucial trait for any successful academic. What you'd say to be the three most useful productivity tips that you have been practicing? I think one that is really crucial for myself is to plan my day to really either in the beginning, that's how I did it. I just wrote bullet point lists and exactly wrote down what are my objectives for this particular day. And then during the day, whenever I didn't know like, oh, what do I have to do next? I just look at that list and know exactly like that's my next task. And uh, I don't have to like go back to thinking about what possibly has to be the next job for the day. So it makes things a lot easier and more straightforward. Actually, recently I moved to scheduling everything in the calendar even to just putting everything right where I want to do it, which helps to become even more effective. Then also have a regular time when you get up and don't delay getting started. I realized for myself that most of the time that I waste is in the morning, or at least I did for a long time. And I actually, in the meanwhile, like to just get up at 5 a.m. Uh, quite early and get started with my day straight away and, and uh, sleep earlier for, mm -hmm. uh, in order to achieve that. One very good tool in order to be accountable is to tell other people that you want to stand up at 5 a.m. or get up at 5 a.m. Maybe promise a friend that you get up at uh, that certain time and maybe call that friend every morning to make sure that you also do that and tell them in case you fail. Yes, and exercise is something that really helps myself also to retain the energy that I need in order to work. And finally, reflect on the sorts of things you tried and what worked and what didn't work and what you want to try in the future. And for that, I, I like to go on walks. I just walk along the lake, have my smartphone out, and just whenever something comes into my mind, I just write it down. So it's, a, it's sort of a brainstorming session while walking. The procedure of walking, the fresh air, and noting things down is really an, a great combination. In, in that regard, I, I use something called Dynalist, which is uh, essentially a massive bullet point list where you have infinite depth, so you can put things deeper and deeper, uh, and you can create this big knowledge tree of maybe brainstorming on your projects, brainstorming on personal life, maybe your plan for the next day, maybe papers you read, all of this information is actually stored in one place and you can always access it. Uh, I even wrote my own app for that in order to have really this super quick access on my smartphone to add new things or to go through all things. Really cool. I think you should write a blog post summarizing all those by soon. Louis, at this part of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment. I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the AI universe whose work you admire. Jeff Kloon for his recent push in meta-learning, Kenneth Stanley for his deep thoughts about open-ended learning, and my advisor, Jürgen Schmittuber, for being a great visionary and scientist. Number two, uh, name one book that you'd recommend for people to uh, develop a better engineering method. Yes, I suppose this one is more about how to become a better version of yourself than strictly engineering. Perhaps quite fitting with the meta-learning theme, I, I recommend the Grit by Angela Duckworth. Lastly, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring machining researchers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Never stop learning and never give up.
thanks a lot, Louis. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. I really enjoy learning about your background in software engineering, your education throughout HPR, UCL, and ITSIA, and how you get into doing research, email learning, and reinforcement learning. And you know, have a lot of interesting conversation on different ideas and how to become a productive researchers and ways that some of the challenges in the future of the AI roadmap can be solved. And I'll be sure to include all the links of your papers and blog posts in the show notes. So listeners have a chance to, you know, dig deeper and, and take a look at Richard if they're interested in examining some of these ideas further. So yeah, Louis, I appreciate you spending time and working with me and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.